You're listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com. Go in your Bibles to Romans chapter 13, and we're going to enjoy a wonderful time of Bible study together. Romans chapter 13 is actually, it's really about government, so the title of this message is Cleansing Government. Are you ready? So when I did the original outline for this, I actually had 24 points in my outline. Are you ready for every? I'm not kidding. I really did. And then I whittled it down to 19. And then I thought, how about a 10-week series? So then some of you guys do pray for your pastor, and I snapped out of it, and now we're down to three. So that's God's truth. Verse 1 of Romans chapter 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. I'll stop right there. I'll stop right there. Lord Jesus, come now as we preach your word. God, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Come upon us, Lord God, that we would be your people. God, let it be known that you're the God in the ranch church, Lord God, that you're the God of Christians, that you're the God of all people who call upon your name. And so give us, Lord Jesus, supernatural wisdom, all power that comes from your name, all authority. And God, as we're in this text and thinking about our government and just the local and state and federal level of that, God, we pray into our government at all multiple levels. Lord Jesus, they need you. And we need you desperately. We need great leaders, Lord God. We don't need good leaders anymore. We need great leaders. God, would you, would you grant sovereignly unto us once again wonderful and great political leaders who know exactly what to do to honor you and to be wise in all circumstances. And would you give that to us once again? So Jesus, we turn now to the preaching of your word that you would instruct us and guide us and convict us and change us and let us be your people. And God, at all manners, we pray at this moment, God, constantly praying, would you be our God and our Savior and our King? Come, Lord Jesus, we now pray in your name. Amen. Okay, so here's my three-point outline of this text as I started out saying that it was so lengthy. It's God versus government. That's, that's sort of the first one. Love versus legislation. And then the Gipper versus Tipper. All right, and that's actually President Reagan and Tip O'Neill. And so I, we're going to go there and talk, talk about this. So related to this text, related to Romans 13, What you have to understand that Paul is doing here is that he's cutting through deception. We don't like to talk about our ability to be deceived and self-deceived, but that's what the Apostle Paul is cutting through here. It's like us to simply say, I belong to the kingdom of God, I belong to the kingdom of God, and therefore I'm not paying attention to the laws of man in any way, shape, or form. I'm free, and I'm free, and I'm free, and that means we're full of ourselves. 
Because our interpretation of that, our practicing of that, our living that out is not often towards blessing our fellow man or participating in culture or building one another up. It's actually for our own selfishness because who likes paying taxes? Show of hands for everybody who wants to pay more taxes, right? Show of hands for those who want government to control you more and more, right? Nobody wants that. And so it's inside us to use Christian freedom to say no to those things and actually be self-deceived in our mind and push them away and us be no part of the solution for culture. For us to be no part of the solution for our fellow man. For us to say, okay, well, somebody else take care of homeless people and somebody else take care of poor people and somebody else take care of the needy. And ourselves to actually be judgmental and all of that. Paul is cutting through that. Which is why he starts in chapter 12, be transformed, the renewing of your mind. And then he surprises us, comes to chapter 13, come to... A, a series of government in Rome, which is not as friendly as ours. And he says, listen, everyone be subject in this manner. Government, as is mentioned in these verses, in the introduction, is to help us have a clear conscience with God and with fellow man. That's what it is. And we in our system of government, which I'll talk about more towards the end, we have freedom to appeal. And so we've actually instituted laws by which we can appeal to legally to other political powers and say, hey, be more fair about this or change that. But we actually need to be cooperating with government. So let's go there. Let's talk about God versus government as we simply pursue the first part of our outline here, God versus government. So it is actually God's will, I want you to write this down, to guide you without interference from political powers. How about that one? It is actually God's will to guide your life, to grab a hold of your life, to guide you in this lifetime through every you know, high and low and to actually guide you without political interference, which is one way of saying that yes, it is God's will that political powers actually bend themselves towards his will. The entire reason why Christians would ever ask non-Christians to obey God's laws in any context is because those are natural laws and supernatural laws which are good for people whether they understand them or not. They bring God glory. They actually free humanity to live according to God's glory whether people can confess that openly or not. So let me guide you through the text a little bit and help you to understand, I mean more the scriptures broadly, to help understand, okay, God, how do you say this, Pastor? How do you say that God wants to guide you without interference? Here's, here's example number one, Eden. Where is the federal government in the Garden of Eden? Everybody should say it's not there, right? It's not there. That's our design. Our design is like our parents, our original parents with Adam and Eve, so connected to God that we can actually understand. It's like walking with God in the cool of the day. And God is the one who is our tutor. God is the one who is our instructor. God is the one who is our guide. God is the one who is sufficient for every task. And so in the Garden of Eden serves as the first illustration. Second illustration, the promised land. 
So depends on how you know your Bible. Let me help you out with this. So the promised land is where, where Moses is actually, you know, he's risen up. You probably know the, the plays and the shows and uh, the movies, right? And Moses famously by God is told to tell Pharaoh, what's that famous phrase? Let my people, uh, everybody knows it, right? Let my people go. And so they go. The deliverance here, that's, that, that's Passover, and that's our Easter celebration with Passover. And then, so God's people go, and they cross the Red Sea. If you know the Red Sea, sorry, everybody say yes? yes. Okay, that's the crossing of the Red Sea. And then they're going to go into the promised land. Now, I'm going to fast forward history there. When they finally get to the promised land, there is no federal government. These are 12 tribes gathered together. And what's fascinating is at the very end of a book called Joshua, where Joshua is Moses' successor to take the people into the promised land. And there's all these sort of, you know, machinations of, of people trying to come together. And he's trying to get the 12 tribes to do their job and have God do what he has promised to do and make this work. And so it's the end of Joshua that he says, look, at, I don't know what all the tribes are doing. Frankly, you're driving me crazy. And I could read in the text there was towards the latter part of Joshua of him saying, I don't know how Moses did this, and I don't know either. You know, you kind of you feel his burden. He's like, how many more battles do I have to fight? How much more do I have to stand up? How much more boldness do I have to bring? How much more rebuking of people do I have to do? I don't know how Moses did this. So here's what I have to say to all of you 12 tribes who are driving me crazy. Right? This is Joshua, my understanding of the text. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I release you 12 tribes to do what God has instructed you to do. I release you 12 tribes to go and take the land. I release you to go be obedient. You have the same Holy Spirit, the same God on high, the same law of Moses that I have. That is all completely true and with you. As for my house, if you disobey the Lord, I will obey the Lord. If you deny God, I will not deny him. If you lack boldness, my children and my children's children and my legacy will have the godly boldness. Go, my house, as for me, we will serve the Lord. That's the context of Joshua. So then, of course, we get now into what you're probably more familiar with, the kingdom of David. And really surprising to a lot of Christians is it actually was not in God's perfect will for a federal government to be developed under King David. In fact, he has to go tell the prophet Samuel. They're not rejecting you but me. The people come and they don't really like the unique ways in which God leads them. In other words, it's this direct connection. And it's kind of difficult for them to comprehend these times where God moves in certain ways and doesn't move in certain other ways. And they're just fatigued by it. And they say, you know what? We want a king. And what they say is like everybody else. We want a federal government like everybody else. We want state government like everybody else which is a way of them saying, yes, take our sons and daughters and tax us of nauseam. And the Lord says, do you understand what's going to happen to you? Even with King David, he's going to take your daughters. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your money. And he's going to create armies. And he's going to create all this other stuff. And yet I would fight those battles for you, but you choose against me. So I'll at least give you David. Samuel, they're choosing to reject me not you. And it's why when you list the kings, 
It's why when you list, if you, if you get into the Bible, you actually study the Bible and you realize, okay, King David, good guy? Yes, good guy. Okay, Solomon? Mm, okay, so-so and kind of bad at the end. Okay, everybody else, this long list of kings? It's really funny when you read some of the commentators on this. Like, I love Halley's Bible Handbook. It's 100 years old, but he has the most hilarious way of talking about the kings. So he'll mention a king of wicked, wicked, very wicked. He has a couple, he goes, very, very, very wicked. <laughs> Terrible. I mean, he says he's huge, hilarious. He's going through a whole long list of names and he goes, okay, not bad, right? And he gets to one or two and he goes, okay, finally, finally. So, so it's why you're used to thinking about David and his glory. You're used to thinking about the Davidic covenant a certain way, which is true, related to the Messiah. But it doesn't come quickly to you to realize that it was God's will for you to always be led directly, directly with him. And so he says now, for your good, I'm going to actually give you government and it will actually be instituted by God. Verse four there, for when he is God's servant, for your good, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. That's why no one's happy about paying taxes. This is part of what God's saying is that this is how I work to help you understand this. The idea of being subject, Christians understand we are subject to God. So the idea of being in submission is nothing new to Christians. We go, yes, I live in submission to God. In many ways we live, what does the book say? Therefore, that's what I do. What does the book say? That's what I work to fulfill. The idea of being in submission is actually really natural for the believer, even though it takes some supernatural power to get us there. It is God's will to guide you without interference. My last illustration, my first was Eden, the second was the promised land, and I illustrated Moses and Joshua and uh, the judges as that period of time. My last illustration on that point is heaven. So you can get real happy because I have good news for you. There's no taxes in heaven. I know you wanted to hear that this morning. Praise the Lord, right? There's also no litigation in heaven. Yeah. There's no bad feelings in heaven. We get along. We have the supernatural power of Christ to get along. Right now, you and I engage in conflict resolution. What did you mean by that? What, I, didn't, I didn't say anything. Yes, you did. You said that, and it hurt my feelings. I didn't hurt your feelings. How could that possibly hurt your feelings? If I tell you that you hurt my feelings, you hurt my feelings. Are you trying to violate my boundaries about how I feel? I'm going to violate your boundaries about how you feel. Right? This, is, this is earth. None of that's heaven. Praise the Lord. God in heaven returns to Eden with us and is that direct guide. Many of the words in the Bible, uh, in terms of the names of God, are references actually to God's direct guidance. So, for example, in some of your Bibles, uh, in the Psalms, you'll have Lord God. So the idea of Lord God is usually in Hebrew, Yahweh Elohim, which is a really powerful phraseology. So Yahweh, I am the, the one who is and am and always will be. I am the breath of life. 
that kind of thing. And then Elohim, you know, the largest possible. So I'm the breath of life, the largest possible God out there. There is none others, which is why you oftentimes see, it's usually capitalized in English Bibles, Lord God. And then in the Psalms, there's a whole descriptions about nothing can touch me, nothing can match me. And then related to God's guidance in the same way is you kind of, Christians tend to know this by Jehovah Jireh, but it's actually Yahweh Jireh. And, and that is related to God will provide. In other words, God is such a my personal guide. I'm so personal attached to him that he will actually be the one that provides for me personally. And then I, I, one of my favorite names of God is Yahweh Shema, or more commonly Jehovah Shema, uh, which is that God's presence. And so I am the God, I'm Yahweh, and I'm this great big God. I created the heavens and the earth, and you know, I come personally to you. My presence comes personally to you. You cry out to me, and I will be faithful to come to you. I've preached on it several times, so I'll give it just as a reference. But Psalm 67 Mentioning the nation says, let the nations be glad. That's Psalm 67. Let the nations be glad when all peoples will know the Lord. Let the nations be glad when all peoples come to know him. Let the nations be glad when they actually understand the scriptures and have the laws of God and when they have them written on their heart. Let the nations be glad when they're baptized and full of the Holy Spirit. Let the nations be glad when they have abundant and spirit-filled churches. Let the nations be glad when the church and the bride of Christ rises up and rises up and serves fellow man. Let the nations be glad. That's Psalm 67. It's God versus government. We need government. We do. This side of eternity, it is God's will. We need government. But it'll always be God's versus government. It'll always be the church's role in this sense to actually ask government, federal, state, and local, to actually, in that sense, be smaller and more limited so that personal and human freedom and Christ's freedom can actually be bigger and more grandiose. I'm going to go from here to love versus legislation, which you're going to see in the text here. Verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. And in verse 7, Paul is transitioning now to this principle of love versus legislation. So verse 8, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Just underline that in your Bible. Like just highlight that. Write it in your digital device. So now a whole series of lists that are related to the Ten Commandments. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor, what does that say at the very end? As yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Love versus legislation. So the Ten Commandments are sort of a broader summary of what, what is being mentioned here, but the text will clearly communicate that whatever the other laws are, they're simply summed up by this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so we cannot actually legislate love. That's our problem. That's why we're preaching the gospel. And so laws are created to help us, law, to help us sort of have some boundaries but one thing's our legislators, and it's just 
all of history. It, it's, not, it's not the United States in its current context. It's all of human history when you read it, when you understand laws. It's the deception of legislators who think that they're going to actually create laws, and because of that law, everyone's going to be obedient to it, and everyone's going to be happy, and it's going to work out in every contingency. The answer is no. That's the law of God, not the law of man. We're always going to have very interesting things that legislation is just not going to be able to do. And there's always going to be negative cause and effects because legislation ends up being so man-centered, whereas the laws of God and the love of God are so Christ-centered. So we need wisdom. You know, right now, the whole gun thing is, you know, a major issue. And so uh, we, we, need to, we need to talk about that. We should not, as Christians, be afraid of engaging in that conversation. Uh, you know, I completely believe everyone has a legal right to own a gun. Uh, you know, but, but then we should probably have some sobriety about some things. One, we should answer a question. So I've been around for a little bit. And when I was a kid, it was 100% easier to get guns. And we didn't have the same problems we have today. And when you do the stats on gun problems, they're actually, they revolve around four cities in the United States. Four major urban areas have just a lion's share across the board. That doesn't mean that we don't have mercy and compassion for these children. I can actually get very teary-eyed at thinking of these kids. I, I do experience some prayerful anxiety when children go into our schools. My kids just graduated from high school, so, but I will tell you as a dad to us and as a parent, I thought about this and I prayed into it, and I just asked the Lord, is, this, is, there, is there some tragedy that's going to happen to these kids? We should not, as mom and dads, have, be having to think that. But it's weird. You know, uh, it turned, you need a license to drive a car, and you need a license to cut hair. You probably need some training process to use weapons that can kill somebody. And there's probably some balance to all of that, even though we have the right to carry guns. We should not be afraid of those conversations, and we should not compromise our positions, but we should be willing to engage in all of those things. But those things will never conquer love. Love is what we will give as we come into our communities and as we bring hope. I love it when, again, when I'd be walking the halls at the school, of the high school in particular, and uh, I'd be sometimes on a prayer walk or, or some student administrator would go just passing me because they didn't want to be another pastor. You have to pray for this place. You have to pray for this. Keep on walking. Like, that's right. We're going to pray Jesus power, superpower into the safety of the school and the safety of our community. We're going to let no evil prosper against our children. We're going to let no evil come against us as a community. But it's love, it's love versus legislation, and the world chooses legislation time and time again. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, verse 10. Therefore, love is a fulfilling of the law. And the Apostle Paul has been hammering at this for quite some time. Now, speaking about urgency in verse 11, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly in the daytime, not in orgies, drunkenness, and sexual morality or sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's what he's been getting at as he talks about this. So I mentioned God versus government and love versus legislation. Now we're going to talk, as we think about this urgency, as we think about the need for this, as we talk about uh, what 
what God is asking of this in some contemporary examples. I'm going to call this Gipper versus Tipper, which is Reagan versus Tip O'Neill. I went not long ago down to San Diego to pick up my youngest from school as he's there at the university. And I guess I, well, actually what, what, what Isaac ended up saying is, oh my goodness, dad, you have that look. And uh, I guess I was just concentrating so hard. Uh, in my head, uh, I was thinking. And uh, so he goes, well, we're going to be here all day, Dad. So what are you thinking, you know? And he's just the greatest son, and I love him dearly, and we have a great relationship. And so I said, well, son, in my head, I've been actually creating an outline that goes like this. There are no more authentic, real, true conservatives in the political realm, and there's actually no more authentic, true uh, liberals in the political realm at all. It's all a mishmash. And these two poles, which need to be understood, have actually no intellectual uh, thought behind them. And we're just a mess of society because of them. And he goes, oh, dad, that sounds great. <laughs> you know, we're in traffic for four hours, you know. And so, so basically, I don't, I don't really write this and I talk it out with my son. So here's, here's kind of going there to some degree. President Reagan was a conservative in principle, and he's probably the last true one that I can find. What that means is he's operating off of a biblical philosophy, just what I said, that it is actually God's will for government, it's actually God's will for him personally to be involved in our lives with minimal interference from government. So what does that look like? That foundation, that foundation became Ronald Reagan's principles as he worked things through. There's another guy in the 80s, an older man by the name of Tip O'Neill. And Tip O'Neill was Speaker of the House. You can read all about this guy. And he was a staunch liberal. He believed just the opposite of that. He believed in big government and activist government. And he believed it from a Christ-centered Catholic perspective. And Reagan believed in his limited government from a gospel-centered perspective, and these guys clashed. Okay, now let's watch the clash and talk about good men who have one principle over here and good men who have one principle over there and watch love versus legislation come out. First of all, it was asked of President Reagan, do you hate Tip O'Neill? because he says nasty things about you, not by contemporary conversations. And he says, no, no, I don't. Actually, Tip and I are friends after six o'clock at night. <laughs> it's gospel truth. Working day, we clank pretty good, but we go home to bed with one another as we go to our families, and believe it or not, we send each other kind notes, and we're actually friends. When the president was shot, President Reagan there was a kind of a, a debate as to who would be in charge of the country because the vice president was in the air on a plane. And so Tip O'Neill goes to see President Reagan at his bedside. By the time he gets there, there's quite a commotion and ruckus and surgery had been done and it was going to be a close call. And Nancy had actually brought in President Ronald Reagan's actual you know, devotional Bible to his bedside and left it there as comfort. Remember love versus legislation? Tip O'Neill walks in as a devout Catholic who actually is a Bible-reading Catholic. He picks up, you have to understand, he picks up Reagan's Bible. He finds the book of Psalms. 
because he knew where the book of Psalms was. And he starts reading it from the book of Psalms. And Reagan, drugged up and after surgery and everything, asked Tip O'Neill, would you read Psalm 23 to me? And so Tip says, no, we're going to read it out loud together. I could hear Reagan saying, you are a Catholic, right? And, uh, but he holds Psalm 23 and he says, the Lord is my shepherd. And with very little breath, the president says out loud to him, the Lord is my shepherd. And then Tip O'Neill says, I shall not want and the president repeats with him, I shall not want. And these two men actually hold hands with all the beepings and things going on in the ER and all of that. And they're reading God's word together. And Tip O'Neill is letting the president know, I've got these things. You've got them. Christ will take them through this. You get better. I will pray for you. And we are actually better together. Amen. That story, oddly enough, is recounted by a guy who is now a shock jock by the name of Chris Matthews, who was the chief of staff as a much younger man of Tip O'Neill and recently wrote about that wanting people to know there are no true conservatives anymore. Everyone's fighting a certain kind of battle and it's pretty ugly. There are no more true liberals anymore and everyone's fighting a battle and it's kind of ugly. And he's trying to say, could we have the model of these two men to show them? And he mentions their Christian faith and he mentions the scriptures and he says, this is the only way to come together even if I, Chris Matthews, do not understand it. And so we need, we need the Lord to help us. We so, we so need to understand that God wants to guide us and yet God wants government, that we need love over legislation and that we need good models of men and women in political power who understand that it's not a zero-sum game. Understand that the nature of getting along, whether it's in a marriage, whether it's in a friendship, whether it's actually in the political realm, is varying degrees of compromise because oftentimes that's what's most loving and good. I'm going to end you with a, a hymn. Are you ready for me to sing a hymn to you? I am not going to sing a hymn to you. <laughs> but I'm going to quote to you a hymn. Martin Luther, after preaching the gospel, saw violence break out. And it, 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 it absolutely depressed him. The Holy Roman Empire had been shown to be a sham. It was neither holy nor Roman, but it was an empire. And it did much, much damage. And so he saw violence break out. He saw fires break out. He watched neighbor kill each other. He watched mass mobs not obey the laws. He, he watched his terror unfold and it depressed him. And he was so depressed, and he's so depressed, he got on his knees, and taking out a few of the Psalms, this is what he wrote. And let it be a word unto you right now, as we talk about giving our lives to Jesus and walking with him. And so watching his neighbors kill neighbor, watching them burn down communities, watching children be harmed, watching violent upon violent, violence, out of the book of Psalms, and in his own song that he wanted the church to rise up and sing, he pens these words. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our shelter he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great 
and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Dost ask who that might be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabbath is his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who is with us and sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. On his knees, watching his society be torn up. He pens that for the church, experiencing tremendous pain and loss. To get on its knees and lift holy hands in prayer and to snap out of it and understand that unless Christ come and save us, we are actually doomed. There is no earthly power. There is no earthly wisdom. There is not a piece of legislation that can actually accomplish what Christ can do. And if you and I are not cleansed, if you and I are not right at the cross, if you and I are not abiding and full of his abundance, then we have nothing to offer anybody else. The Spirit waits for that bride. Lord, Sabbath is his name. From age to age the same. And he must win the battle. Now maybe you know why I had 24 points to start. <laughs> I'm going to ask something bold of us, church. If you go there, the Spirit will come. We have this truth to cling to. So many California state laws violate the truth. And so many federal laws violate the truth. But what happens to you and I is we become angry and bitter. So I'm going to ask you, church, I'm going to ask you, as pastor, I'm going to call you out right now. If you have been angry and bitter about all the political back and forth and everything else, and you are willing to repent of that anger and bitterness right now, then I'm going to ask you to stand up right where you're at and just acknowledge that repentance that you leave it behind and to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Is that you? Thank you.
Thank you. I'm standing to preach, but I'm standing with you. Thank you for listening to the Rick Soto Podcast. For more information about Pastor Rick Soto and the Ranch Church, go to ranchchurch.com.